The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. How can I feel lonely when I'm almost never alone? That's a question I hear from a lot of busy working professionals, and it's something actually I agree with. Dr. Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General, understands. And he recently joined me and Beth Kutcher, news editor at LinkedIn, to talk about connection, forging meaningful relationships at work, and the U.S. epidemic of loneliness, in which almost 50% of Americans experience measurable levels of loneliness. The thing that I always love about talking to Dr. Murthy is that he's so open and vulnerable and real. In this episode, you will hear his own hacks, really, how he manages to feel connected in measurable, quick, and very doable ways. It's a fabulous conversation, and I would love to hear your own experiences when feeling lonely or isolated or just sometimes like, does anyone understand me around here? Maybe that's just me. This is a LinkedIn Live, and so the audio may not be as high quality as my normal podcast, but it's a really valuable conversation that I hope you enjoy. One of the things that I admire most about you is your willingness to take on the issues that impact so many of us, but we may not talk about that often, right? We may not even have a word for what we feel, loneliness, a lack of social connection. You know, one of the storylines that I have enjoyed following the most is this storyline about what happens to our work friends when we're working so differently. I want to dedicate this broadcast to a dear work friend of mine, Bina Shah, who passed on Thursday, and my community and my workplace is holding her dear in our hearts today. Work friends are so powerful. I'd love you to tell us about the role of work friends in your life and how you think about it. Well, thank you, Mara. And I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I first just want to say, though, how sorry I am about Binesh's loss. Uh, you know, our, our work friends can be almost like family, and they play a really vital role in our lives. And I, I'm sorry about her loss. I hope that this is a time where you and others uh, who cared about her are able to come together and support one another. I do want to say, though, that the, the role of work friends is really vital. And I'll tell you, you asked about my own experience. I'll tell you that I have been privileged very early on in my life to have experienced like the power of, of friends at work. When I was really young, the first nonprofit organization I remember I started with my sister many years ago, we, we started the organization to serve a mission. But what we found is that the people who came together to work on that mission, we became good friends with one another. And what that meant was not that we shared every deep you know, element of our life or secret with each other. What it meant is that we cared about one another as more than just skill sets 
or people who could execute a task. We came to know about each other's lives a bit, about our families, about our dreams, about uh, our worries. And we helped one another, not just at work, but sometimes even outside of work. And those bonds became incredibly powerful for us. Many of those people from that first uh, you know, organization that we started, we stay in touch with and are dear friends to this day. And I found that even subsequently that it really makes a difference for me if I have people at work who I consider to be friends. It turns out, though, more that there's actually a lot of data behind why this matters as well, that it's more than just a feeling. But the work of Sigal Barsade, you know, a late professor at the Wharton School of Business at uh, University of Pennsylvania, she and others had found that when you have someone you consider a friend at work, it has a positive impact on your engagement at work, at your creativity, on your productivity, and ultimately on your retention in the workplace. All of this really matters too. The flip is that when we don't have anyone that we feel connected to at work, it not only impacts our overall happiness and our performance, but it actually has a negative impact on people around us as well. Hmm. This makes sense when you think about it because we're all affected by the people around us, right? If somebody, if you're in a meeting with four people, and one of them is in a really bad place. That affects how the meeting goes. It affects the other three. We've all been in that meeting where it's like, you know what? I just I wouldn't go near them today. <laughs> Don't ask them for what you want. Right. Yeah. So, so our sense of connection really does affect, you know, our, our state of mind and, and how we show up at work as well as at home, as well as in our communities. And so this is why connection in the workplace really does matter. And it's one of the reasons why when last year, when I issued a Surgeon General's framework, for mental health in the workplace, one of the five essentials that we laid out was centered around social connection because it truly does matter for how we perform at work. Before I hand it back to Beth, I would actually like you to define social connection because it surprised me that there are three core elements and it really flipped the switch on how I think about the importance of social connection. Yeah, well, it's important to understand that there are different types of connection that matter to us in our lives. And if we don't, it can actually lead to some consequential and costly misunderstandings, as I'll explain in a minute. But the the three types of connections we all need are as follows. The first are intimate connections. And these are the best friends or spouses we have, the people who we can be ourselves with, who understand us, who care deeply about us. And we may spend the, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50% of our social time with those people, but they're really essential. The second type of connections are what we call relational connections. These are the friends we may get together with for birthday parties, or we may go on a vacation with, or have over for dinner every now and then. These friends are also vital. We talk to them, we share with them, we spend time with them, we have fun with them, and we learn from them. The third type of connection these are collective connections. And so this is, think about the connections you may have at work or in your place of worship or in the community organization you volunteer with. These connections help us make us feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And we all need these three types of connections in our life. It doesn't mean we need hundreds or thousands of friends. You know, you may just have a couple of people you count as intimate connections, a couple of people you count as friends, a few people in your collective connections that you consider your community, but they matter. And the reason it's important to understand these three is that if, let's just say that you're, well, I'll give you my situation. In 2017, when I was really struggling with a sense of loneliness and disconnection, I also happened to be in a very happy marriage at that time. And my wife, Alice, was my rock during some difficult transitions I was going through. 
but she recognized what was happening. And she came to, I told me one day, she said, you know, I think, I think that you're missing a community like mm -hmm. in your life that you, you don't have people that you're going to work with and getting together with and, and you're part, part of a mission with. And I think you need that to, to be happy. And she was exactly right. I had intimate connections in my life. I had a wonderful relationship with my, my wife, Alice, and a couple other close friends, but I didn't have a sense of community. I didn't have those relational connections. If you don't recognize that, you might see your best friend or your partner struggling with loneliness and think, oh, wait, this has got to be a reflection on our relationship. Mm. Something must be missing from my marriage if my spouse is lonely. But that's not necessarily the case. They may be missing friends or a sense of community, which is just as important. I love that you said that because I have a lot of friends who are like, I'm never alone, but I'm lonely. Yes. And that's a really important distinction because these days, look, whether it's online or offline, people are often surrounded by people. But, you know, being lonely or feeling connected is really about the quality of those connections. You know, I've made many trips to college campuses around the country where students who are often surrounded by thousands of other students on campus will tell me, I feel lonely. And it's because they don't have people who they feel understand them for who mm. they are, who they can be vulnerable and truly open with, without worrying that someone is going to judge them, somebody who will show up for them in the time at a time of crisis. So it's really about the quality of connections that really determine like, whether or not we feel lonely. I did want to discuss what is causing the loneliness epidemic. Hmm. So when I asked LinkedIn professionals to weigh in, some a lot of them mentioned social media use. A number mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure with remote work, these things are getting harder. Hmm. What do you see as the contributors? Yeah, so I think that there are a few things. And, and I, I think what folks you know have suggested there COVID, social media, these actually are, I think, contributing factors. You know, I think COVID certainly disrupted our social lives and our time with one another for young people who went through those first few years of COVID and missed opportunities to, to be in school with one another, to socialize with family and with friends. That was particularly impactful because they were at a critical time of social development and missing out on that has real repercussions. But this problem of loneliness preceded COVID. And I think some of the factors that were driving it were, yes, social media, which I do think, while it is ha can have some positive effects on people's interaction, on finding community and finding opportunities, I think what has happened is I think the pendulum has swung for many people to where many of their in-person connections got replaced by online connections, where quantity of relationships somehow became more important than quality of relationships, and also where the nature of the interaction also fundamentally changed. Like I, I remember this change happening over several years where on birthdays, I remember friends, we would, we would call each other. And then over a few years passed, and then we would text each other. And then a few years passed, and then people would just post on each other's walls saying happy birthday and with a message. And then finally, at one point, which is the current time, people just left posts on social media saying HBD. Even the words happy birthday got shortened you know, to an acronym. So the point is that that represents a change in quality of interaction. Now, what's happened is we can wish many more friends happy birthday because we have reminders, a way to do it literally in five seconds. But how meaningful is it to them compared to a phone call? So I do think that social media has profoundly changed the nature of our social interaction. But lastly, let's just keep in mind a couple other phenomena. We have, thanks to the efficiency saving 
benefits of technology, we can order groceries, you know, from, you know, online, we can get most packages or items that we want delivered to us without ever having to leave our house. But what we're missing is actually the interaction with people in the retail store, in the grocery store, the conversation that might take place with someone in line. And I'll finally just remind people of this, like, you know, this is a time, of course, where people move around more than ever, right? We leave home, we go to school, we go to work, we change jobs often, and all of that involves leaving a community behind. And again, that may be worth it, but what we have not developed is we have not intentionally and consciously developed effective ways of mitigating that harm and building relationships. And that's the last piece I think that's important to underscore here is this is a cultural factor. Talking about something separate from technology or from other such trends, I'm talking about a fundamental question of where do relationships and community fall in our hierarchy of priorities, right? And I worry that what's happened is essentially almost by default sort of said that, you know, work is at the center of our life. And work is really important, don't get me wrong. But I think what we've underestimated is that if we don't have strong relationships, that we're actually less effective at work, that we're less effective in other dimensions of our life. And that's why I think we have to very intentionally raise relationships up on our priority list and and try to build now people-centered lives instead of what I worry we have tended toward, which are work-centered lives, which come at the expense of our relationships. And I think that answers the question that Todd has, which is how do we actually prioritize these relationships when especially American culture, because you mentioned culture, demands so much of us? Well, I, I think Todd is asking a really important question. And, and it's it's hard to change culture on your own, but we can take steps individually that can start having an effect on the people around us. And I think it starts with with small steps that we take in our day-to-day life. So for example, can we put 15 minutes aside each day to reach out to people that we care about? That could be a phone call that we make to them. It could be a video call that we make to them. It could be a conversation we have on the way to work. It could be at any point in the day. But that 15 minutes just to call someone and check on them to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I just want to know how you're doing. That's a way of anchoring in. And because social connection is not a solo act, when we do that, we're helping someone else also feel more connected. We're reminding them that, hey, it's important to prioritize this kind of outreach in their life. But in addition to our individual lives, we all play roles in our communities, in our workplaces, you know, in organizations we may volunteer for. Just take the workplace as an example. If you are in a workplace where you're thinking, gosh, you know, I, I feel like there could be a stronger culture of connection here. You don't have to necessarily wait for your workplace to organize something or to completely revamp its culture. You can start small there too. You know, is there somebody that you could have lunch with? once a week or a couple of times a month? Is there a colleague who you might stop by and just say goodbye to at the end of a workday? You know, if you're in the office, just for five minutes, just to check on them and see how they're doing. Is there somebody who after a meeting looked like maybe they were having a tough time during the meeting who afterward you just want to just check in on them to say, hey, I noticed you were quiet in the meeting. I just wanted to see, you know, is everything okay? Are you doing all right? Like we create culture when we change what we believe and how we act. And when one person does that, it has spillover effects on other people. We can start doing that right now, today, in our workplaces and in our communities. I want to take one more question from Dane, and then I'll turn it back over to Maura. He wants to know about the quality of relationships. And I think you alluded to this when you talked about the HBD on social media, which I think resonated with some people in the, in the chat. How do you define a quality relationship, and how much does that matter? In my mind, a high-quality relationship is one where we have somebody who we feel will show up for us in a crisis and where we would do the same for them. It's a relationship where we feel we can be really open and honest. It's a relationship where we don't have to worry as much that we're going to be judged or that the 
affection they have for us or that the friendship is conditional, such that if we share something we're not proud of, suddenly we're going to lose our friendship. I think it's important to just pay attention to how someone else makes you feel. Do they make you want to be a better person? Do they push you to aspire to being the kind of person you want to be? Do they remind you, you know, of what's important to you in your life uh, when you forget? These are the relationships we all need. And I use that word need very intentionally because I want to say to Dane and to everyone out here who's trying to think about quality relationships that it's okay to need other people. I say that very intentionally because I feel like we've grown up in a time where we're told that, hey, you got to be independent. Being independent means you shouldn't need anyone. You should be able to do everything on your own. The truth is that that's contrary to human evolution, right? Like the, the people who, you know, thousands of years ago when we were hunters and gatherers who said, you know what, I'm going to be independent. I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need anyone else. Like those people died because they got eaten like by a predator. <laughs> they starved because they had, you know, ran out of food. It was the people who said, you know what, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do my very best but I'm going to depend on others and they're going to depend on me and we're going to be interdependent. It turns out those are the people who survived. They built trusted communities and they went on to thrive. And that is true in the current day as well. So there's no shame in needing someone in leaning on someone in relying on someone. And we should also take pride in showing up for others as well, recognizing that others are going to have moments of crisis. They're going to be in, you know, during times of need and they may be shy or hesitant or feel ashamed to ask for help. And I think the more we're all able to step up and show up for other people, to be proactive in offering our help and extending our support, the better off I think all of us will be. The comments coming in are so fantastic. And I want to highlight, Jake says, we we sort of unintentionally set employees up for isolation, even in how we schedule breaks and lunches. Dr. Murthy, I also would be remiss if I didn't tell you that my elderly mother oh. keeps calling me. You should pick it up. We're on this Zoom. You should pick Speaking it up. of connection, absolutely not. It's the 10th call today. <laughs> but, but well, I feel like when your mom calls, moms take priority. So whatever you need to do. <laughs> absolutely. I'll, I'll call her after. She'll be thrilled to know I was on with you. But, but it's funny. I mean, our love-hate relationship with the phone that keeps us connected to each other. I wanted to just zoom back in on work. A lot of what I see coming through in the comments and a word that I actually really love mm. at work is belonging. I want you to say how you think about belonging on teams and also as a manager yourself, how do you try to foster belonging and what advice do you have? You know, I think about belonging very simply. I think of belonging as where you feel valued, where your presence is cherished and where your absence is missed. The truth is everyone should feel that they're valued in a workplace. You know, one of the five essentials we laid out in my framework for mental health in the workplace that I issued last year, one of them was on mattering. For those who may not be familiar, the five essentials were protection from harm, social connection and community, work-life harmony, mattering, and also growth. Those are five essentials that we all need in the workplace. But I think, look, a lot of times, I think we don't take enough time to understand whether or not people feel that they're valued, where they recognize that their absence is in fact missed and that people want them around. Uh, we may assume that because we feel that about somebody else. But in this day and age, especially in a time where people are working more virtually or in hybrid settings, we have to be even more explicit about that. And look, having your work value doesn't mean that you have to be you know, saving lives or transforming like the economy. You know, If you're a custodian working in a school, helping to clean the floors and the tables, you're helping to create a clean environment so children can learn 
that's really vital, right? If you're serving food in a cafeteria, I bet the thing about the cafeteria in our workplace, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services, there's a woman in, in our workplace who I see often, you know, when I go to get <laughs> my cups of hot water, which I, I love to drink every day and, and get other snacks and this and that. But I'll tell you that she always has a smile. She always asks how people are doing. She makes us feel like we're people, not just customers paying for a drink or a snack. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly valuable in terms of making a transforming a place from just a location that people show up to to work to a place where you feel like you truly matter and you belong. And so I do think belonging is vital. I, I love that word as well. And I think it's important that everyone knows about it because whether you are in a management position, whether you're the CEO, whether you're you know, a frontline worker, whatever position you're in, we all can do things in our interactions with others to help them feel like they belong. If they missed work, for example, and we noticed it, even just telling them, hey, I noticed you were gone yesterday. We really missed having you in that meeting. These meetings are always better you know, when you're there and you contribute so much. Like That means a lot for someone to hear. Otherwise, they might think, eh, I wasn't there. What difference did it really make? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. We know from study after study that after a fair wage, people's sense of mattering at work is the most important factor for keeping people engaged. And you're right. It doesn't have to be the big employee of the year award, mm -hmm. although that's nice. Yeah. One of the things we're coming mm. towards the end of the year, you've probably had thousands of conversations this year. What have you learned mm. about what loneliness feels like? to Americans right now. Mm. What do you want to say to us about what you're seeing on the ground? Well, you know, I've heard so many stories now from people who are students, who are in the twilight of their life, people who are working parents, folks who are CEOs, members of Congress, you know, faith leaders, so many people who have been struggling with loneliness in their own way. I've just felt the deep shame that many of them have felt around their loneliness. I've also come to really just appreciate at a visceral level how painful it is. And the ways our brains operate, the way we process pain, emotional pain and physical pain can often feel very similar. Hmm. And so when people say, God, it really hurts to feel lonely, sometimes they can mean that in a very physical sense. So that pain is is very much seared, uh, you know, in my memory from many of these conversations. And, and it is heartbreaking uh, because especially when I talk to young people, uh, we've been visiting college campuses to talk specifically about the loneliness epidemic and to 
to talk through how we can rebuild connection and community in our lives. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, Omar, these have been, of all the events that I've done, probably thousands at this point during two stints as Surgeon General, these have been the events that have had some of the greatest demand and the most engagement because young people are feeling this loneliness so deeply, like more so than any other age demographic. And so this is prevalent, it's painful, it's really consequential, but it's one of those things where people are suffering often in silence and they're alone in their loneliness. They often think, hey, I, I'm, it looks like everyone else is having a great time and going to parties and, and celebrating this and that. And they're always surrounded by other people. And they look like in all the photos they post, it seems like they're overjoyed. So I must be the only one struggling with loneliness. And even though we know that online life is a distorted reality, it still makes us feel by comparison, like we're worse off when we see all of these you know, joyous pictures posted and we don't feel that way. But I'm also seeing something that's encouraging, which is that when we actually do get together and talk about this openly and honestly, when we explore what we can do together, I see people feel a sense of hope. I'll, in fact, I'll share with you, Mara, something that we do. It's something we call our five for five challenge. It's a connection challenge where we challenge people to take five acts of connection over five days, one per day. And that could either be by expressing gratitude to someone by asking for support or by extending help to someone else. And these are very simple actions that can actually over time make us feel really connected. And we'll often do the first one right there with the students while we're in the room. It takes just 60 seconds, but we'll ask them to think about somebody that they're grateful for. And if you're listening to this right now, you can do this. Just uh, pause for a moment and think about somebody in your life that you're grateful for. It could be somebody who helped you out last week at work. It could be somebody who years ago, at a time where you faced a great disappointment and you were losing faith in yourself, somebody who showed up to remind you that, no, you really do matter. So just think about that person for a moment. And what I found is that almost everybody has someone that they can think about at some point in their life where they're grateful for. And then what we ask the students to do after reflecting on that person for 30 seconds is to take the next 30 seconds and to actually compose a text message or an email to that person and to send them a note and just tell them in just a one line or two lines that they were thinking about them and why they're grateful for them. You may choose to actually just pick up the phone and call that person and tell them yourself. The reason we do this within 60 seconds is one, because when you have a time deadline, a lot of us work better that way. But it's also just to, to illustrate that powerful acts of connection don't have to take a lot of time, but they can leave us and someone else feeling extraordinarily more connected, more seen, and more like we belong. And as the holidays approach, you know, I, I think that that's something for us to, to keep in mind. And really for all seasons, I think it's important for us to realize that we are one phone call, one visit, one message away from feeling more connected in our life. Our challenge is, is often not that we don't have people who care about us, but that we've lost touch with those people, or we've assumed that because of distance and time and not being in touch, that maybe those people don't care about us anymore. Maybe they don't want to hear from us. But chances are they may also be feeling the same way, feeling lonely, struggling with a sense of isolation and hoping that somebody reaches out to them. It's your phone call, your visit, your message that could make that connection and make all the difference. Dr. Murthy, one of your priorities this year is also toxic workplaces. Hmm. And I think that these two topics might dovetail a little bit. 
So talk about the employer perspective. Do you see these topics as dovetailing? And what is the importance of encouraging employees to actually build connections at work? Well, I do think these these topics do intersect. And it's one of the reasons that when, when we put together our five essentials for the workplace, social connection was one of them because it's really vital actually to uh, part, as part of the formula for creating a healthy place from a mental health perspective for people to work. When people talk about toxic workplaces or toxic bosses, they often mean different things in different settings. But when I think about unhealthy workplaces, one of the things I think that characterizes those are Workplaces where people don't feel like they matter or that they belong or where they're protected or that where people care about them. And that can show up in different ways. When you don't have systems in place to protect people from, let's say, from abuse, right? Which uh, sadly we saw a lot of during the COVID-19 pandemic in hospitals and clinics with healthcare workers being subject to verbal abuse and physical abuse, uh, 80% of them, in fact, during the early years of the pandemic. That can really grate on people and can lead to more burnout. The other thing is when people feel like they personally don't matter, that their work uh, doesn't matter, or that they're not appreciated, that also can contribute to burnout. You know, wages can sometimes be a signal of our value, right? So when people feel like their wages aren't commensurate with what they're contributing, that can also have a real impact, especially if people aren't being paid a living wage. So I think in this day and age, it's really important for leaders in workplaces to be cognizant of these dimensions. Sometimes we think, oh, if we just pay more people more money, that's going to solve all our problems. It's not the case. You know, you do need to pay people a living wage, a fair wage. But these other dimensions of having, for example, opportunities for growth, of helping people understand that they really matter, of having work-life harmony. Work-life harmony doesn't mean that a workplace needs to solve everyone's work-life balance issues, but it does mean that they can take steps to facilitate that balance for example, by respecting non-work time. You know, if during your non-work time, you're constantly getting pinged by your boss with the requests and demands for things, and you're expected to essentially be available 24-7, that's not helpful for maintaining work-life harmony. And in a, day, a time where like people feel connected all the time, increasingly they feel like their weekends, their evenings, even their vacation times are expected to be responsive and available, you know, for, for work. That's just not healthy for maintaining the rest of our life, caring for ourselves, building connection, doing the things we need to do to rest, recover, and recuperate. We're getting a lot of questions from people about, like from Shilpa asking about in-person connection, but what about remote work when you're stuck in your home office for eight hours a day? Well, Shilpa, it's a really good question. And I think it's a question a lot of people have right now, because we know after COVID, many people have shifted to hybrid arrangements and some to completely remote arrangements as well. In developing work arrangements, we have to recognize there's a balance we're trying to strive for, right? That there are some people who will benefit from the flexibility of a hybrid arrangement. Many of us have likely been in circumstances where we came to work, but in the back of our mind, we were stressed because we knew that we had a sick kid at home or we had somebody else who was depending on us at home or we were worried about missing a critical date for a family event. And so that flexibility can be really important from a social connection mental health standpoint. The flip side that we also have to take into account is that it is harder to build strong relationships when you don't have in-person time. And so when you're virtual 100% of the time, that means we have to mitigate for that. And that means we have to be more intentional about creating opportunities for people to come together and to actually learn more about one another, to have time where they're just 
spending time together without an agenda for work, but an agenda to build and deepen their relationship with one another. That's, that's not something we necessarily put a lot of time or thought into because we didn't necessarily have to. But all of those conversations, unplanned conversations that used to happen in the workplace when you're in person, the five minutes of conversation after a meeting ends, where you're just catching up with one another, these things don't happen when you're uh, virtual unless Again, you're planful and you create opportunities for them. I'll also give you one example of something that we do in our workplace as well. And that's a once a week, we actually have something very simple that we do for 10 minutes a week as a team uh, called our Humans of OSG exercise. OSG stands for Office of the Surgeon General. And during this 10 minutes, we'll have one team member interview another team member about their life. And it could be about what their hobbies were when they were young. What did they dream about doing? Who are the people they looked up to and really admired? What were their hobbies? What do they do now, you know, for relaxation or for for rest? Um, what do they dream of doing, you know, after this job is done? Like we may ask them any number of questions about their life as long as it's outside of their current job. And I'll tell you that in those 10 minutes, a lot of times we'll learn more about a colleague than we may have known despite having worked with them for an entire year, you know, if we weren't very intentional about learning their story. Dr. Murthy, what I'm hearing from you is really a lot about intentionality and almost developing mm -hmm. new muscles, developing almost new habits. I would love you to share any other sort of hacks even or intentional things we can do in our day to foster more connection. To everyone who's tuning in, who's listening to this, who has an interest in the subject, this is really vital. It's something that has been underappreciated in society over the last several decades. But the more and more research we have, we realize that social connection is really vital, not only to our performance and work, but to our personal health and well-being. We've realized that when you're socially disconnected, that raises your risk of depression and anxiety and suicide, but it also increases your risk of heart disease and stroke and dementia and premature death. So this is not an issue to take lightly uh, or to put lower and lower and lower on our priority list saying, hey, when we get to it, when everything else is taken care of, then we'll, we'll pay attention to our relationships. This is just as important as any other public health issue like smoking or obesity. So here are some simple hacks that I use. And I share these knowing that time is at a premium. We're all trying to add a 25th hour to the day to do all the things on our to-do list that we didn't get to. But here's some simple things I do. One of them I already mentioned, which is, is to spend 15 minutes a day reaching out to people you care about. Again, it could be a simple call, could be a, a video call, could be swinging by to see somebody, uh, or it could be making sure that you have that 15 minutes to talk to your kids or to talk to your partner you know, in a given day. I know that seems so simple and obvious, but how many days go by where we realize we don't really have conversation with the people literally in our own house because we're just trying to get through the day. The second thing I would offer is a, a tool that you can use to actually stretch time, and that's your attention. So it turns out that if you can take that 15 minutes and actually fully focus on the other person and put your devices away during that time, that 15 minutes will feel a lot longer, like in a good way. And it'll feel a lot longer to the other person as well. Because all of us have been in situations where we were talking to somebody, but they were checking their phone. They thought they were sort of double tasking and talking to us, but we can feel when someone is not fully present. Whereas when you're present, it is such a powerful gift that you can give to someone else, it deepens the quality of the connection. Third thing I would offer that I do is very simple also, is to actually pick up the phone when people call, family and friends. 
Now, this seems like an obvious one, but a lot of times, like when we don't have time, like we'll silence the call, we'll figure out, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll call them back later when we have time. And if you're like me, then that time never really comes, or at least it takes many, many weeks to come. But instead, like what I've started doing is just literally picking up the phone, even if it's just to say, hey, I'm about to walk into this conversation with Beth and with Maura. Uh, is it okay if I call you back? And they'll say, oh, sure, sure, no problem. Just give me a call. I just wanted to talk to you about and, and see how you're doing. The whole thing might take 10 seconds. Are you sure you didn't talk to my mom, Dr. (laughs) (laughs) This whole conversation was orchestrated by your mother. (laughs) But even if it just takes 10 seconds, which is about what it would take uh, at least for you to text them, even just to say, hey, I can't talk to you. Hearing their voice makes a difference. And it'll make a difference to them as well. The last hack that I'll just share is a, a very simple one, but it's... It's based on the understanding that one of the most powerful antidotes to loneliness is service. It's helping someone else. Now, service doesn't just have to mean volunteering for a soup kitchen or for Habitat for Humanity. There are many ways to serve uh, the people around us, right? Like if we have a colleague who's having a hard time at work and you stop by their desk at the end of the day just to say, hey, just wanted to check on you and see how you're doing. That seemed like maybe you were having a tough time today. That's a small act of service right? That can be powerful and not only making them feel better, it makes you feel better too. And this is counterintuitive because people think often if they're lonely, that someone needs to serve them and help them, right? Because they're the one who's struggling with loneliness. But when we help someone else, we build a bridge to them. And we also reaffirm to ourselves that we have value to bring to the world. And that's really important because when we struggle with loneliness over time, one of the things that happens is it chips away at our self-esteem. And over time, we come to feel like, we're lonely because we're not likable. Something's wrong with us. We're not lovable. We convince ourselves of all of these things that we deserve it. But when you yep. serve somebody else, you're reminding yourself, no, I can connect with others. I do have value to add to the world. So these are some simple things you know. I try to do in my own life. There's something, even if you don't have people around you, there's something that you can do, which I actually just did this morning, which can also just take you 30 seconds, which is a gratitude exercise, which is just to you know remember someone in your life you know, who showed up for you. It could be when you were a kid, it could be last week, it could be at any point, but somebody who was there for you, who, you know, believed in you when you lost faith in yourself, somebody who showed up for you during a time of, of great need, somebody who showed up to celebrate with you during a time when that you were really proud of yourself, you accomplished something great. But just to spend 30 seconds thinking about that person can be very, very powerful because when you are feeling grateful, you actually can't feel grateful and angry or sad or cynical at the same time. When you're feeling grateful, you feel the joy that comes with that. And the good thing is that even if that person is no longer with you in life, the love they had for you, the kindness and compassion they extended toward you, that remains in your heart. It remains with you. And that's something that you will have with you for life. That's it for today. To hear more LinkedIn Lives, head over to my profile on LinkedIn where they're all indexed. You can subscribe to my newsletter too. And be sure to subscribe or follow the Anxious Achiever feed for more of these conversations, as well as my regular podcast episodes.